Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is Episode 7 with freediver and best-selling author, James Nestor. This episode is brought to you by the Surf Diva Surf School. I've taught at Surf Diva for years and seen hundreds of men and women learn to ride waves, and it literally changes their lives. If you go to surfdiva.com and book a lesson online or on the phone, tell them the code WILDIDEAS, you'll get a $10 gift card to use towards your next lesson or in-store. This episode was also brought to you by Graced by Grit. I love this female-owned brand because they're all about helping women cultivate their grit to find their grace. They also make kick-ass activewear clothes. I can literally go running in my yoga pants from Graced by Grit, throw them in a ball, wear them the next day and the next day, and they still look great. And they fit amazing, which is always important when you're running and doing yoga and all sorts of active activities, living wildly. If you go to gracebygrit.com and enter code WILDIDEAS, you'll get 20% off your first order. Welcome to episode seven of Wild Ideas Worth Living. Today we have James Nestor, a best-selling author of the book Deep, underwater expert, freediver, surfer, and even drives a Mercedes that he converted to run off of vegetable oil. James is a really interesting guy. I met him a few years ago at his book signing, and we've been going back and forth for a few years now. I've asked him a lot of advice about writing and surfing, and he's just a great storyteller. James is going to talk about the sport of freediving. It's a wild sport and what he's learned from writing a book, what he's learned from exploring the ocean at its greatest depths and what he's learned about quitting his job to become a writer. I love this interview because James gives really good advice about being a writer. He breaks it down. He talks about what it's like to live wildly and how to make it happen. I hope you enjoy this show. Let me know what you think. So James Nestor, welcome to the show, Wild Ideas Worth Living. We're so excited to have you on. It's great to be here. Thanks. <laughs> We're just going to get right into it. You were a surfer and, and a writer, but you had this wild idea to write a book about freediving of all sports. The book Deep won a ton of awards. I'm just curious, how did this wild idea come to be? Well, I grew up in Southern California and spent most of my youth in the water, as many people do down there, um, surfing and body surfing and swimming. And I understood the ocean from the surface. And, uh, you know, I moved up to San Francisco many, many years ago and have been surfing up here ever since. But I was asked to go on an assignment for Outside Magazine about, God, I guess it was about four years ago. And they wanted me to check out something called the World Freediving Championship. I'd never seen anyone freedive before, had never done it myself, didn't know much about it. Um, so I showed up in Greece went out on this little boat to the freediving competition site, which was about a mile off the coast of, of Kalamata Harbor, and watched these insane people take a single breath of air and um, descend down around 300 feet and come back to the surface semi-conscious. Some of them made it. Some of them did not. Oh, um, yeah. by, by did not, I mean um, they came up with blood on their faces, gasping for air. One guy was temporarily dead. Oh. Um, so it was com completely mystifying on, on a number of levels that these people at home, the their bodies to be able to do such an extraordinary thing. It was also mystifying that they were just using this ability to dive up and down a rope with their eyes closed. So I had pretty mixed feelings about freediving, but luckily I met some more philosophical freedivers at the competition who said, you know, this is all bullshit. You need to go see the real freediving. Meet me out in Reunion Island in a couple of weeks. And so that's when my journey really started. It was just random. A door opened and I went in and next thing I know, I'm on Shelfie Stanger's podcast. So there you go. <laughs> how, how did you just say my name? That was so funny. <laughs> um, wow. It's not Stranger, is it? It's I not, it's not stranger. stranger. It's Shelby Stanger. You're so funny. Um, okay. So freediving. 
what about freediving really lured you in? Because you freedive now, right? Yeah, I had to uh, as part of the book. You know, if you're going to write about something, you have to write about it from the inside. I love that. It really miffs me when I'm reading a book and someone just just calling it in from a desk, uh, especially when you're covering things, you know, adventure science. I I have always found that it's much more educating to experience all the things that the people that you're writing about are experiencing. Um, that's really the only way to to get inside of the story. So. After watching these guys communing with all of these amazing marine mammals um, from the deck of a boat over months and months and months, they finally said, hey, you need to try this. It's not some death-defying thing. You're not going to come up with blood all over your face. You're not going to die. Freediving can be a very nurturing, meditative practice. If you just listen to your body, don't pay attention to your watch. Don't pay attention how deep you're going, how long you're under the water any of that competition, just listen to your body. Your body knows when it needs to breathe. It's that easy. But you can so, die in freediving. So just to tell the audience, like, yes, you can die when you freedive. You so. you can if you don't listen to your body. Yes. You know, um, uh, the, the AMA divers in Japan have been diving for thousands of years, and there isn't one recorded instance of any of them dying or blacking out because they dive meditatively because they listen to their bodies the whole time. Westerners have taken that approach and exploited it to see how, how deep we can dive for how long. So, um, you know, uh, they showed me this other side of freediving. You don't have to go down 200, 300 feet to do it. You can go down 20 feet or 30 feet, and it can be an incredibly immersive experience. And that's the sort of freediving I focused on in the book. That's the sort of freediving I do now and will continue to do as, as long as I possibly can. So I want to go back to these AMA divers because that was one of the most exciting parts about the book for me. Th those were the female Japanese divers. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So there's a group. Can you just tell me who the, the audience, who they are and, and what they do? Yeah. So I started researching freediving. You know, competitive freediving has been around something like 70 years and it started in the West. But before that, for literally over 10,000 years, there's archaeological evidence of people freediving all over the world from the Baltic to the North Sea to the Persian Gulf, Atlantic, Pacific, like any coastal community, not any, but almost all of them had some form of freediving. And that's what really interested me. I was like, what did those people know that we don't know today? And so one of the last uh, remaining cultures from that ancient tradition are the Japanese Ama divers. And they've been free diving for something like 2,500 years in the same way. They um, go into the water in their natural form. Only until the last 15, 20 years did they even wear wetsuits or goggles because they feared it would give them an unfair advantage over other sea creatures. And they're women. To be able to be warm. They're all women. Yes. Uh, no so one knows cool. for sure why. Um, you know, there's many different theories. And depending on who you ask, they'll tell you something different. But they are all women. Um, and for a long time, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they just dove nude. And some of them still dive nude um, without goggles or anything. Um, so I had heard that there was still a culture of the real AMA divers, not the tourist divers that go out and, you know, collect pearls and, and sell them to tourists in, in Japanese tourist towns, but real working AMA divers off the coast of Japan. And uh, so I hopped on a flight and went out to find them. And they let you dive naked with them? <laughs> we weren't quite naked. Uh, they have adopted um, wetsuits in the past oh. 15, 20 years. Thank God. No, water I love the whole nakedness. My last cold. couple of guests have been naked. Like one girl, one naked and afraid. The guest before sailed naked. I think there's something with this nudity. That's not what this podcast yeah, is about, though. So go ahead. So you didn't dive naked there could with them. Be, no, I did not. Uh, you know, but considering Japanese culture is, uh, yes. you know, a, a, a twisted conglomeration of of different rules that I did not understand at all. I did not approach them naked to dive. Uh, these women were in their 70s and 80s. They had been diving every day since they were 15 or 16 years old, every single day. Wow. Um, they were in perfect health. They were mentally very sharp. They were physically complete badasses. Um, so it took me a while. They thought I was just another tourist 
coming up to take photos. So I had to return day in and day out till they saw I was actually serious. And then they, uh, they took me out with them. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. And it was, it was incredible. And again, the, these are people who, who use free diving in a completely different form. They use it to, to gather food from the ocean in, in a very natural way. They said, as long as you can gather food, whatever you take, one person can take by his or herself, the ocean will always provide. The moment you start bringing in technologies and huge nets, that's when you start stripping the ocean. So they showed me this completely other way to interact with the ocean and its inhabitants. Hmm. And, and you talk a lot about the difference between what, what happens and how animals respond to you when you free dive versus use machines. Can you talk about that difference? Sure. And that was one of the first things that I noticed. I'd been scuba diving for, for a long time and absolutely love it, still do love it. Um, but it is just a very different thing, free diving, because when you free dive, you're completely silent. Um, instead of animals swimming away from you, they swim towards you. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's a dolphin, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fish, even sharks, like everything envelops you in, into its shoals and schools. And that's very disarming at the beginning. But after you get used to it, you, you realize that these animals aren't looking at you as though you're an intruder to their underwater world. They're accepting you as, as part of it. And that paradigm shift um, is just is extremely powerful to you. You see yourself as belonging as a part of the ocean, not just an observer to it. And, you know, once you have that access, you can do research that a, a lot of other people can't because you you have an intimate connection with these animals. And I read your book, so I, I'm pretty sure I know why. But can you explain to the audience why animals will approach you when you're free diving versus when you're scuba diving? Sure. A, a lot of animals rely on sound as their cue for to see in the underwater environment. So they have very acute sense of hearing. Um, and when you have scuba, it's extremely loud to them. You're, you're blowing off bubbles. Um, it's very disturbing to them. Also, marine mammals usually blow bubbles as a sign of aggression. If you look at what dolphins do, especially if they're pissed off and they come up to you, they'll blow bubbles. Uh, through their blowholes. And so when they see someone wreathed in all these metal attachments, who's extremely loud and is blowing bubbles, it's a real turnoff to a lot of animals. And they, they swim the other way. You know, one freediving instructor told me scuba diving is like, you know, driving an SUV with the air conditioning on, blasting music through the wilderness and trying to, wow. you know, experience a forest like that. I think that's a little extreme. <laughs> I still love scuba diving, but in some ways, I, I do agree with them. And once you free dive, you, you understand the meditative, peaceful um, feeling and, and you see that reflected in the other animals around you and how they accept you. Well, wow. so I, I'm, I'm only going to ask you one more question about free diving, but I'm just fascinated <laughs> by it. And some of my audience has experience with it. Some has none. Um, many of them have, have none. A lot of people don't know a lot about free diving. What happens to your body physiologically when you free dive? I specifically want to know about your heart rate and what are the things that seem to defy what, you know, conventional thought would think about what happens when you dive? Hmm. Yeah, I'll give you the, the truncated version of this. But um, what happens when you dive is one of the most powerful physical transformations you can naturally experience. Uh, it starts at the surface. The moment you put your face in the water, your blood is going to start rushing from your extremities to your core. Your heart rate's going to lower around 20%, 20, 25% of its normal resting rate. All of these things allow you to stay underwater longer and hold your breath longer than you would be able to on land in, in dry air. And the deeper you go, the more these reflexes called the mammalian dive reflexes compound and grow more pronounced. So for instance, at around 100 feet, you're around three atmospheres down. Uh, blood is going to start pouring from your extremities um, to protect your organs. Your lungs are going to fill up with plasma to protect themselves from collapsing. Um, and, you know, one guy measured his lungs, uh, his chest at around 47 inches at the surface. By the time he was at around 250 feet, it was around 23 inches. So you see the wow. stresses, the extreme stresses that underwater pressure is, is putting on your body. But what's amazing is your body has these natural defenses, these 
these uh, reactions to combat those stresses. And these reflexes aren't learned. Each of us have them within our bodies. Uh, if you put a newborn baby into water, um, it will naturally, uh, most of the time, uh, go underwater, hold its breath comfortably for around 45 seconds, open its eyes and begin breaststroking. So this is, this is part of who we are. We're meant to be in the water. We're meant to be deep within it. And these mammalian dive reflexes just reflect that. And it's that connection to the ocean that really convinced me that there was something more than just a magazine article on this, that there was a book to explore this completely other side of free diving, this connection we all have with the ocean and, and how we can access that. Uh, each of us can access that and learn more about um, ourselves and the, the planet we live on. Well, I think I read, or maybe in one of your videos, that somebody's heart rate got down to seven beats per minute. Is that correct? Or 14 beats per minute? Yeah, you're, wow, you're, you're a good pupil. You've, you've done your research. Um, uh, that's, that's right. Uh, the heart rate will continue to lower the deeper you go. And obviously, with a lower heart rate, the body is consuming less oxygen. So that allows you to stay down um, much, much longer than you would be able to on, on dry land. And the lowest recorded heart rate ever was of a freediver was at around seven beats per minute. Now, just to give you, uh, you know, example, that's, that's, I think about a third of the rate of someone in a freaking coma. So, uh, physiologists said that this was not possible. A heart rate that low cannot support, uh, human life. And yet these freedivers have completely busted through all of these impossible barriers repeatedly over and over and over. And now these guys just scratch their head and they're saying, Oh, well, whatever, you know? So it's, it, I, I, you know, the, the deepest someone was according to, to math, according to another doctor, the deepest a human was supposed to be able to dive was a hundred feet, anything lower. We would be crushed by the underwater pressure. You know, I've, I've seen people go down to 300, 350 feet. I saw one guy take a sled down to 800 feet. So it's, uh, you know, all of those limits, it just depends on who you're talking to. Um, you know, what's possible, and what's not possible. I find that heart rate thing so interesting because Johnny and I met a guy in Australia who was using free diving to apply it to medical procedures because your heart rate can get so low. Um, there's just mm -hmm. so much there. So what are the, some of the most exciting findings you discovered in writing this book? It wasn't just about freediving. It was about what's below the surface. Well, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Who is this guy doing medical procedure freedive training? I will tell you. Because that sounds a much more interesting I, than, than, you know, whatever drivel I'm, I'm talking about right now. I, I've meant to email you about him. We'll, we'll talk about this <laughs> we'll, guy. He kind of we'll likes to hide later. in a cave. Um, so okay. I think he, he doesn't want me to share, but um, it's, it's fascinating. Um so, so besides free diving, you, you went in a submarine, you did all these crazy things in a submarine sounds absolutely terrifying. So maybe you can talk about that, but, um, maybe talk about some of the times you're the two times you're most scared in writing this book. And then some of the, maybe the two most exciting findings you had writing it. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the breakdown of the book, I was thinking it would be neat if this book had a trajectory and just kept going down. So every cheap, every chapter goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And, you know, you can only free dive so deep or follow people free diving so deep um, before I had to resort to machines. Um, and so I wanted to see how physically deep I could get in the ocean and try to understand, understand the ocean and our connection to it at extreme depths. Um, so I found, uh, there's a number of submarines that are capable of going really, really deep, but of course I had zero chance of getting on a Russian or, or a U.S. institutional submarine. So I found this freelance guy named Carl Stanley who had hand built a submarine and was running it out of Roatan, a submarine that goes down around 3000 feet, which is really, really deep. And, uh, he'd take anyone down, you know, for, for a price, you're like, how, how deep do you want to go? And so I uh, hopped on a flight to Roatan and hung out with Mr. Carl Stanley. Amazing dude. Like, talk about a DIY guy. Everyone told him, oh, he, he studied, like, you know, American history in college and then hand-built a submarine for, for nothing, for dirt cheap. And now he's, he's spent more time in the deep ocean past 1,000 feet 
than anyone in history. And this guy has done this, you know, completely on his own without any help from anybody. But so, a submarine is terrifying because if you get stuck or drive it the wrong way or don't know which way up is, I mean, you're you're done. <laughs> it's well, well, what's so comforting about that? You can think of like really horrible ways of dying, like you know, drowning or burning, like those are really bad. But when you're at 3,000 feet, if something bad happens, it's not going to take five minutes to die. You're just like, the light switches off instantly. The submarine is going to collapse. You are going to be liquefied in, in like a fraction of a second. So once you accept that, it becomes really easy <laughs> because, because there's no pain involved. You won't even know when it happened. So um, and, and also, you know, the vast majority of the largest communities of life on the planet are below 3000 feet. We look at the at the world as this, this blue planet with all this life on the surface. Well, most of the stuff is in the deep ocean. And, and so few people have seen it. And I really, if I was going to write a book called Deep, I, you know, I needed to go down there. I didn't want to half-ass it. So we took a four-hour uh, submarine trip to around 2,400 feet. And I saw things that um, are unknown to science. It's a completely creepy, gelatinous world down there. And uh, one of the coolest things I've ever done. Gelatinous. What do you mean? Can you just describe this to people listening in their cars? What's it sure. like that deep? Well, if if you think about it, like, okay, so we have daylight here, and and we have eyes, and so we judge everything, you know, visually. Though those of us who are who are gifted to have uh, eyesight, so that's how we're viewing the world. We look at someone, you know, is he attractive? Is she attractive? That's how we judge everything. Once you get Past around 800 feet, 800,000 feet, everything's black all the time. Doesn't matter if it's daytime, doesn't matter what time of the year. There are no seasons. There's, there's no rain or snow. It's just constantly black. So what you look like doesn't matter. So these animals have developed ways of being the most efficient in that world. And that means having very little flesh, being rail thin, being uh, translucent uh, through cell walls. Um, they have these huge eyes that are not used for viewing anything in daylight, but are only used to, to view other animals bioluminescent. Um, so bioluminescence is the, um, you know, that's the natural production of light from animals. So their eyes are only used for bioluminescence. So these things look absolutely in, insane, so creepy. But then again, who cares? Because they never have a, a flashlight or a spotlight shined on them. Like aesthetics don't matter down there. There's it's, a joke about being shallow efficiency. and deep with these animals, but. <laughs> well, come on. You can't bait me like that. Go on. Um, okay. I could ask you a million questions about your book, Deep. I, I There's so much science in there that you make really fun um, and entertaining just and so many discoveries but this show is about having a wild idea and how you did it so I want to talk about being a writer in the mm -hmm. early 2000s I think you said you had this wild idea to quit your job and become a writer but you're a writer before then so let me let me go back you had a you had a wild idea to become a freelance writer so tell me a little bit about this leap to become a freelance writer how'd you do it how'd you get over the fear you know, what made you just say, I'm going for it? Well, like every other good boy that grew up in Orange County, um, <laughs> you know, I went straight through high school, straight through college, immediately got a job, just started working away um, because that's what I had been taught that was that was the proper thing to do. Right. That's what responsible people do. So, um, you know, I right out of college, I started writing ads and started writing copy for hotels and um, for catalogs and gift catalogs. And that was my my business for, for years and years. I still was surfing all the time as a way to, you know, try to retain some humanity. Um, but, uh, you know, I had friends and did all that. But my work life was very droll because that's what I just understood um, everyone had 
do because that was the, the suburban culture uh, that I grew up in. Um, very conservative suburban Orange County culture. So um, as a way of like having fun and, and using my brain at work, I would take uh, freelance stories. Um, I would just, uh, I was endlessly curious about writing for magazines. I loved learning about new stuff. So I would just do that for, for fun. I had this extremely surreal Kafka-esque job um, that was mostly funded by the federal government. Um, so thank you taxpayers for uh, you know buying me a house and sending me on certifications all over the place. Um, but uh, it was also uh, completely soul-sucking. Uh, it was very easy, had all the luxuries, uh, you know, month of vacation and all that. But, you know, after a couple of years there, I was like, what, what do I really want on my, on my tombstone that I sort of half-assed it or that I, you know, pursued something that, that was my, my true love in life. So, um, as the magazine stories started piling up and I started getting better at writing those, I, you know, sort of had to confront myself and say, uh, you know, if I'm not going to, but at, at this time, uh, when am I going to do it? I'm going to end up, you know, still being at this place when I'm 70 and then retiring. And that's that's the end of it. So um, I finally cut the cord uh, and it was super scary the first couple of years, because if like many people out there, you know, once once you're used to collecting a paycheck every two weeks and relying on that, when that paycheck stops coming and you start working as a freelancer, it's really feast or famine. You're either way too busy and you're getting paid or you have zero work and you don't know where the next paycheck is coming. So it takes a really long time. It took me a long time to acclimate to that, that new kind of lifestyle. Uh, luckily, surfing's pretty cheap, you know? Uh, so I just pared down my lifestyle and, um, and just sort of hunkered down. Uh, but it was by far the best decision I, I ever made. And I, I shudder to think where I'd be if I had just stayed in that job, sort of half-assing my way through every day. I love listening to your story because I was also in a job in Orange County that was so hard to quit <laughs> to become a freelance writer. Um, and people think being a freelancer is glorious. Um, and it but, is at times, but, but you've also broken down the process of writing to me in a, in a very real way. Can you just talk about, can you just demystify the, the whole freelance life and just talk a little bit about the hardest parts of the job? Sure. Um, I think that a lot of people, or at least a lot of people who I've known uh, that will remain nameless right now, um, who have the luxury of just writing when they want um, these are the people who get writer's block, who are uninspired, who blame other, you know, circumstances for not writing. But it's really amazing what happens to writer's block when you have a deadline. Mm -hmm. It's like, huh, I've never, ever had writer's block because I can't afford to <laughs> because you have to deliver stuff on time. So, uh, you know, writing for oneself and, and freelancing for for a, you know, job is People think it's just free form. That's where the word freelancing is is sort of misleading that you can just do whatever you want and everything's cool and shock a bra and all that. But it's it's you have to be completely disciplined um, in the way you approach this stuff. And that, that doesn't mean you have to work nine to five. You know, maybe you can go out and surf or screw around in the day. But that does mean that when it's on, you're putting in 10, 12 hours a, a day you're not, you know, Saturdays are the same as Tuesdays. Sundays are the same as Fridays. There, there are no weekends. Um, everything is in flux. And having come from something so so rigid and understanding that, you know, weeks where there's a time to play, there's a time to work, uh, that was a hard thing for me to sort of get into the groove of that. But, but now that I'm in that, you know, if this sounds so cliche, I'm going to say it anyway. But once you're doing something that you really love to do, that you look forward to doing, it just doesn't feel like work. So I'm constantly, quote unquote, working. But this is what I love to do. And this is what I'd be doing uh, recreationally anyway. So so those two have completely merged into one another, which I guess is, you know, what it's all about. What are the craziest things you've had to do for an assignment or that you've chosen to do or pitched? Uh, um, well, those crazy stories are the ones that I I love writing the most. You know, people who are living out 
in that, in that gray zone between civilization and, and complete wilderness. I think that that's, that's the really interesting way to, way to live and way to be. And, um, and I think those people are very philosophical and have very interesting, uh, life stories to yes. tell, but, um, you know, at, at the beginning you're writing whatever comes to you. So, uh, I thought you know, I saw something that you got, you, you once <laughs> like tased yourself or ta- got tased. Yeah. Else. Yeah. You yeah, ate some that, weird things. Yeah. Okay. All, all that happened. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, the, the weirdest story, I'm, I'm not quite sure, um, what that might be, but, uh, at, at the beginning you're, you're just sort of like trying to get by and, and find your footing. So maybe you, you write a story, but you know, that doesn't necessarily represent what you want to keep on writing. And, and that's what a lot of people don't understand too. If, you know, if you've got a, a trust fund, and I, I don't pity anyone for having a trust fund, I sure wish I had one, uh, yeah. then you can write about whatever you want, and you can deliver it whenever you want. But when you're doing this for, for a living, you, you have to produce at, on a regular basis. So, you know, you end up writing some, some pretty silly stuff on, on occasion, but that's just part of the job at the beginning. Luckily, I don't really have to, I haven't had to do that for the past three or four years, um, but, you know, is what it is. What's the best advice you can give to someone who wants to be a freelance writer? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I will say this, this sounds like I'm some old fogey saying, oh, it's not like, like it was, you know, back when I started. But in some ways, that's true. Um, even when I really started doing this 15 years ago, uh, the culture has changed considerably. Uh, it seems like most writing, um, uh, that you're asked to do, people are just asking people to do it for free. Most websites don't pay anything. And that's where you really need to get started. Um, you know, breaking into the magazine world, there's fewer magazines now they're still doing okay, but breaking into that world takes, takes literally years and years and years of practice because so many people want to write for magazines. You know, if you're thinking about newspapers, New York Times, great. It reaches, you know, 10 million people. What do they pay? Yeah. Basically <laughs> I'm nothing. I was going to get into that. I was like, then you're not Basically making much money. nothing. <laughs> so you have to find a way of, of supporting yourself through this. And what, what I've suggested people do is, you know, work part-time at the job you have, if you can figure that out. And with that other half of the time, dedicate that solely to, to writing. Because I've known people who have just said, you know what, man, like, screw it. I'm just going to quit my job and become a writer. And then four months later, they're, you know, back in line uh, delivering job applications, trying to get a job. So you have to do it. I mean, you have to plan this and be, be smart about it. And, you know, most of all, you have to make sure this is what you really want to do. If you're not absolutely loving every part of the process, then this job is going to completely wear you down. Um, so I, I think that's that's my advice. Be smart about it. Maybe gradually go into it and um, be prepared for a pretty wild ride. So writing magazine articles and writing books are two absolutely different things. Can you just tell me a little bit about your process of writing a book versus a magazine article? Mm, sure. Um you know, they are different things, but you use the same skill set uh, for them. What, what people don't understand is a lot of people read a book and they're like, oh, it's just like a long magazine article. And, and that's true. And it's, it's not true because something like, like Deep, and that I can just speak to that because that's my first like, you know, nonfiction book here. Um, it was like writing 100 magazine articles in the scope of, of a year because not only are you writing individual chapters, but all of those chapters have to tie into one another. Otherwise, it just reads like a random conglomeration of, of articles. And that's not what a book is. A book is an entire whole. Uh, it's it's a, an ecosystem in which every line has to tie into another line. Um, and I learned this from an amazing editor uh, named Eamon Dolan was my editor for, for deep and who really, this guy's been doing books for, you know, 20, 20 years, some, some really amazing, he did moonwalking with Einstein and fast food nation. And so this guy, I was lucky enough to, to get him as an editor and, and he gave me 
you know, a real education in how, how to do these things. Um, and once you do books, it's, <laughs> I've, I've done some stories since then. Uh, I wrote a scientific American story, some surface journal stuff, but once you do one book, it's all you want to do. Um, it, to be so immersed into one subject for a year and a half, um, where, you know, every moment of every day you're thinking about it is something that might drive some people crazy, but I absolutely love it. I, I feel like I can really find the, the true nature of the story if I'm just focusing all my energy on it. Do you have any routines you stick to when you're on deadline writing a book? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I know everyone's got their own, their own thing. Uh, to me, <laughs> as far as routines, I, I don't because my routines are necessitated by how much I need to get done at, at each particular time, if that makes any sort of sense. Um, you know, towards the, the end few months of delivering a book, you are just jamming it out. I went to a cabin up in Inverness, which is in West Marin, uh, just north of San Francisco, and just, you know, worked all day, every day until the thing was done. And that's when I was saying you really have to love what you're doing. I love that process when you can see the light at the end of the, at the end of the tunnel and everything's starting to coalesce and come together. Um, so I, I guess my, but wait, you, you know, went, you went to a cabin in Inverness. So you do kind of get off the grid to finish these books. I, oh yeah, you have to, I, I think, and, and that's, that's one of the most important things that I think if anyone's going to seriously try to do this for a living, you have to go, uh, when it's time to work, you need to turn your phone off and turn the Wi-Fi off and to set a timer and say, I'm not checking my email. Um, I'm not going to look at my phone for the next three and a half hours. And if that means I'm just sitting here and not doing anything, that's how it is. Um, you know, I, I have this thing that I'm getting back into where I check email twice a day and that's it. I check it at noon. I check it at five. And that's, you know, if you want to contact me, you can call me up. <laughs> you know, the phone's always on. When, when I've told all the editors and everyone I'm working with, like, hey, if anything's urgent, call me up within... Over two years of doing this, I've never once received a phone call from anyone. So that just shows you how much just garbage is coming in in, in the email. So I, I guess that, sorry, I'm, I'm reassessing what I told you before. Well, that's uh, okay. This is have, really good stuff. You have to get offline. Uh, it's such a complete waste of time to, to sit there and answer emails every 10 minutes and have those emails turn into other emails. Um, and you'd be amazed uh, once you start doing this how many problems get solved by themselves. Um, I'd say 90% of the inquiries I get are answered by the time I come online um, because people are so trigger happy with, with email. So, so that's, that's my pattern. You know, uh, I'm working on a bunch of stuff now and um, I have an office out back of my house that I built that's around five feet by eight feet. It has one chair, a desk and a computer on it. And that's, that's it. So when I go in there, I'm in lockdown and I'm not doing anything but, but working down there. That's, that's really interesting. Um, do you have any other routines that you just have on a, on a everyday basis? Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? Do you surf every day? Uh, I try to, you know, the surf up in San Francisco sucks, can suck for, I won't say it sucks all the time. It's like, what, what about ocean last beach? few weeks, last few weeks have been pretty amazing, but the previous three or four months have been absolutely awful. So I just exercise when I can. It's never, um, a consistent thing. I don't go at noon on, you know, at the gym doing stuff. Uh, so I do like Martial arts, I do yoga sometimes, not enough, and, and I surf, and I'm, and I'm on my bike all the time. So, But at no particular time, like sometimes I work at night, sometimes uh, I work in the day. I just sort of, I know I'll get the stuff that I need to get done done because I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm not going to flake out and procrastinate and say, oh, I don't feel like it. I know I'll get it done, so I just sort of allow myself to do what what needs to be done throughout the day and, and evening. Um, and, and everything is just sort of, uh, you know, in flux the whole time, but, but I really love that. So, uh, it, it just beats having a really stringent schedule. At least that, that works for me. It might not work for other people. 
So this is a little off topic, but your first book I bought was about getting high. It was called Get High without Now. Drugs. Without drugs. Without drugs. Exactly. Without drugs, which I love because I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't use drugs. Um, so, so not the 420 way, a natural high. Can you just tell me your favorite ways to get high without drugs? Oh man, where did you find that thing? Uh, so it's let me, I'm awesome going to give you book. a little bit. I know and it's, it's still, it's still selling. Uh, let me give you a little background about this, this book though. Okay. Um, so, uh, my uncle was this real Hollywood, like business guy, successful dude, collector, um, he did, you know, was really tuned in with the psychedelic scene in the 60s and the 70s. And when he passed away, uh, this was like 10 years ago or so, he had this house in the Hollywood Hills just filled with shit. And I found all of these notes on these crazy meditations and breath work stuff and yoga stuff uh, that he was experimenting in the, in the sixties and seventies. And I took these notes back. I was just totally fascinated with it, put it on my coffee table and a friend came over and she was reading them. She's like, you totally have to do a book on this. Just sort of take these and do a book. And I was like, ah, I don't really want to do that. She's like, no, I know the people at Chronicle books here. We're going to set this up. So I wrote a proposal in about three hours, sent it to them and to my disbelief and horror they <laughs> they said absolutely um no so I, that does I, not happen readers usually um or listeners <laughs> for normal book proposals that's incredible but, but what, what was what was interesting about this was that i told them i said hey this isn't just going to be some hokey uh stupid thing what i'm going to require each and every entry to have is real science behind all of this stuff because it's one thing to pick up a book and be like oh that's cool huh that's kind of funny but if there isn't a sort of kernel of knowledge being passed from the writer to the reader then i would feel like i totally failed so i took this pretty crazy subject and really baked it in in a ton of real science and worked with a bunch of you know physicists and and doctors to make sure all the science checked out. So that was the book. Uh, that was my first foray in into publishing. It came out in two thousand nine. Um, it's come out in German and Russian, and I still get insane emails from people about that. So. Uh, so yeah, that's <laughs> that's it. So maybe we can just talk a quick one, but uh, like really quickly about about breathing. Can, mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about that? Am I giving well, anything can. away? Okay, I'll yeah. let you talk. Yeah, <laughs> I might know too well, much. Well, uh, when I, when I was doing all of the uh, free diving research, I was learning how these people had used breath to do this incredible, uh, you know, to dive to incredible depths. And it was only, you can only hold your breath for 12 minutes if you learn how to breathe properly. So I kept asking them, I said, what's the benefit of, of doing this on dry land for people who don't want to hold their breath for 12 minutes, who don't want to dive down to 300 feet. And I found, uh, some absolutely incredible stuff of, how all almost everything we know about breathing and in pulmonology is being upended right now by a bunch of new crazy research and how simply breathing can affect your weight. It's the it's the number one marker to determine uh, longevity. Um, it can also profoundly affect your health. And we're doing it completely wrong right now. And the history of how we've learned to do this wrong and how much of this, our, our breathing has been, uh, our bad and negative breathing has been influenced by the pharmaceutical industry, especially the asthma industry, um, really sort of piqued my interest, um, <laughs> so to speak. So uh, I've been exploring that quite, quite a bit lately. So just to tell the listeners, James and I have been talking about breathing for a little while now. It's, it's a it's a topic that I'm really fascinated by. I've done some different breathwork exercises with different types of people. And yes, the simple free act of breathing can be really altering. Um, so we're going to, we're going to just stay tuned for more from breathing about you from you. Um, but really quickly, we don't have too much time. This podcast mm -hmm. is supposed to be the length of a run or a commute. So maybe run an extra mile <laughs> or you can listen <laughs> to the rest of this on your way home from work. Um, but we'll, we'll ask you a couple of really quick questions. Do you still surf? I think you already answered that. Yes. Where are your favorite places to surf around the world that you can give away? 
These these are you don't the have to name questions. waves. These are the easiest, best question. Uh, yes, I surf as much as I possibly can. I've been getting really into body surfing the last cool. about a year and a half because the waves here in Ocean Beach uh, can be really ratty and huge and wind torn. But when you're body surfing, just like none of that matters. You're always having a good time. You can always get barreled when you're body surfing. So. Um, I've been having a, a lot of fun with that, um, and I'm going to be doing uh, exploring the the very first body surfers on the on the planet, and be doing a story about them uh, coming up in a little bit. Uh, favorite spots to surf? I can't tell you that for God's sake. I know, but you can say you favorite countries to travel to for surfing, maybe. Oh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you favorite a story. I don't oceans? know if it's one of my <laughs> one of my favorite spots, but. But it was certainly an amazing spot. So when I was in Kalamata, Greece, um, you know, I watched this guy like die for two minutes and get resuscitated. The next day was a day off from the free diving competition. And uh, I was just like, damn, I need to get away from this thing and away from these insane people and like go somewhere. So I got in a car, rented a car and just drove west. And I ended up at... I kid you not. There was no planning here. There were no maps, no anything. I end up at this beach and I see the surf shack on this beach and there are waves in Greece and people are surfing on them. It was one of the most creepy, creepy things. So I get out. These guys give me some boards, um, me and a couple other friends. They gave us boards and we sat there and surfed for, for three hours um, in Greece and then went out and had dinner and I still know these guys. I'm still in, in contact with them. So, um, I won't say that's the best place in the world <laughs> to serve Greece. Uh, but it was certainly one of the most inspiring, um, and wonderful surprises that I've had surfing ever to know that this culture persists around the world it's in Greece of all places and that there is it, it sort of had the old friendly vibe. What I imagine surfing was like in the 60s, where these people took me into their community, ended up hanging out with them. It was all um, completely kosher and cool. And so it, it really inspired me that that the true spirit of what surfing is supposed to be is alive and well. And it's in the Peloponnese. So. That sounds like a fun place to go surfing. Where's your favorite place to free dive? Oh, it, it just depends. They're all different flavors. You, you know, uh, I go up north to Mendocino when the conditions are good, which is like never, which is about four days a year. Um, and free diving in the kelp forest, you know, around seals is a pretty incredible thing. Um, however, it's so cold. You're wearing eight mil wetsuits and freezing miserable. your butt off. <laughs> Uh, it, it is, but it's the solitude out there. No one's out there. You're alone in the ocean, in the wilds, and it's pretty amazing. But uh, I was just in Mauritius. Uh, as far as visibility is concerned, that place is pretty unbeatable. Uh, Sri Lanka was was incredible. Japan was great for the, the same reasons. Um, so I think anywhere, uh, you know, where there's decent visibility is a wonderful place to explore. It's like going to different cities around the world. You know, every every ocean has its own has its own vibe. Um, and uh, you're just to be able to explore those under your own will, under your own breath uh, in a natural way is, is a real gift. So you travel a ton. Um, what are items you always take when you travel? <laughs> Okay, I do have that. That is one something that's very consistent. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm constantly traveling, uh, and and I love it, and that's just part of why I signed up to do this to be able to travel the world on someone else's dime is is kind of what it's all about. So, I always bring a a um a bandana that I tie around my head when it's time to sleep. Um, so I look a bit like a, a creepy terrorist, so no one uh, bothers me. Uh, B, always have earplugs everywhere. I have them, uh, you know, my suitcase. I have them in my day pack all the time. I just don't want to hear people. Um, I have headphones and, and you know, my phone for, for music. Uh, I also try to carry some food that can last a while, usually trail mix or nuts, even though that sometimes doesn't make it through. 
uh, into other countries because as you well know, like uh, for instance, I, I was just saying, I, I went to Mauritius. That flight was 27 straight hours wow. back and forth. One, one stop in Paris for 45 minutes and then you're back on another 12 hour flight. So, you know, eating airplane food for 27 hours, you're just going to feel completely wretched. So I try to, uh, you know, eat very, eat vegan-ish and very responsibly when I'm flying. So when I show up, I'm uh, somewhat uh, able to, to function. Vegan-ish. I think that's how I describe my diet right now. I'm vegan-ish. <laughs> when you can. I, you know, it's, it's so hard when I, I really respect vegans who can travel to foreign countries and you know, really make that work. But I don't it's try to, to, to do that. It's around the house. Yeah. But, but, but not in foreign countries. If you could go back in time and tell your teenage self one thing, what would you tell him? <laughs> oh, to start writing sooner and to cut the cord sooner and to, you know, really follow your, your heart with what you want to do sooner. Don't wait. Don't do what I did and, and wait so long to do it because you're scared or you've been told that you weren't supposed to live life this way. Uh, you know, we get one go at this and now is the time to do it. So I guess that's what I would tell myself. That's good advice. Um, if you could fly an eco-friendly plane around the sky and it could read one message to the world, you know what, let's, let's change this. If you could drive your, so James has a, a, a converted Mercedes that runs off of vegetable oil. So if your Mercedes could drive around the entire world, even over water, and it could have a banner plastered over it that said one message to the world, what would it say? Just be cool. Just be cool. That's not going to translate well in speaking, Spanish, but okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, there, there's so many smart ass things. I was very tempted to say there, but considering <laughs> the current political environment, God. I think that the key to living together is just to chill the hell out and just be cool to one another. And hopefully we'll be fine. I like that advice. Um, <laughs> what's the best gift you've ever been given? <laughs> oh man. Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I actually have no no answer for that. That's, that's okay. really that's really tough. That was a real curveball. How Shelby. about the best? I, you know, gift I thought you? I thought I knew all of these questions coming out, but that one, I, I don't know. We can huh. come back to that. What's the best gift you've ever gifted to someone else, or is there a gift that you regularly gift other people besides your own books? Which oh, I would just be awesome. keep, <laughs> I just keep regifting the same bottle of wine. So I think that's that's the the main one. What's the wine? I I don't I just made that up. Oh, I, I, these <laughs> these questions these questions are are perplexing me. Okay, right Kate, now. I have one um, that I no, think you can answer. No, they're good, but I, I have no I have no answer. How that, about so. books you love or recommend? Mm, okay, that's that's a much better question. Um, God, there's I mean it depends. People ask me this often and it depends who I'm recommending it to. You know, I have a friend who's kind of a smart ass and is, is really into, um, you know, doing things his own way, a real DIY guy. I told him to read You Can't Win by Jack Black. Not the Jack Black you're thinking of, the Jack Black from the, the 1920s and 30s. There was a guy before, the comedian. Um, that's an insane book and rumor has it they're making it into a movie. It's about this very ethical burglar in, in the twenties. Um, it was William Burroughs favorite book ever, um, and inspired him to do, to do what he did. So, uh, but it just, it depends on, on who I'm talking to Giovanni's room. I, I just you know, mentioned that one of the most beautifully written books I've, I've ever read. So by Baldwin. So what about to yeah. people who want to live more wildly? I mean, the Odyssey by Homer, I think would, would be, that is the most appropriate book to read right now. If you really want to go out and learn about the trials and tribulations of, of how to live life to it, to its full and, and how to seek truth. Uh, I think that's a very important book. Way to pick such a short read. <laughs> Uh, I would. Okay. Well, how about this? Um, one, one essay I read that has affected me more than any, anything else I've ever read in my life. And it's short. You just have to get through the first page people 
is go download Self-Reliance by Emerson oh, right now. Yes. Ralph okay. Waldo Emerson. There is every lesson you need to learn about how to live life um, and, and to be content with yourself is in that very short 20-page essay. Absolutely vital information. So That's great advice. I'm going to put all of these in the show notes of the podcast. So audience can go to wildideasworthliving.com, go to James' podcast, James Nestor's podcast, and we'll have all of that in there. Are there any authors you follow? Uh, Well, I know a lot of authors here in San Francisco. It's a pretty tight writerly community here. Um, So, I mean, it, it, I, Again, it, it just depends. In my line of work, I don't read too much recreationally because I'm reading all day. Um, you know, the the last book that I I really thought was pretty amazing, fiction-wise, as a thriller, was Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Um, I don't know if that's going to fit in with your uh, your listener. No, it's great. Here, but uh, but crazy book, all based on on physics, and he just made physics appealing and accessible through a very thrilling sort of murder mystery tale. And I think it's whenever I read fiction, I want to learn something real about the world, not just about, you know, someone else's, uh, you know, emotional conflicts, but, but something that that I can then take on and carry through. And, and I thought that book was pretty amazing for for how it did that. So what, what's next in your life? You're working on a book now. I am uh, knee deep in book research right now. That uh, project is going to be due in about a year and a half. Um, oh, that's a I've long got a, deadline. Well, uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, 300 pages. I'm going to have to go to about eight different countries. So uh, uh, I have two things going on in, in old Tinseltown, which which might be playing out pretty soon. Oh. I wrote a, a treatment uh, for a film um, that uh, I believe is, is going to be picked up next week. So nice. um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's just so much uh, happening right now. It's all good, really positive stuff. I'm doing a bunch of VR virtual reality short films for aquariums and zoos to try to move these institutions away from captation and allow people to have a, a wonderful and in, incredible experience through VR that, that they won't want to see animals in cages. Um, I think that that's an important thing. So hopefully um, I'll be going to um, uh, Mozambique in a few weeks to do some VR recordings of dugongs out there, um, which are completely fascinating little mermaids of, of the ocean. So, uh, we'll see everything, you know, sometimes I don't know my schedule until like a day before I have to take off and do stuff, but there's a lot of things spinning around right now. James, it sounds like you're onto some exciting stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Loved having you. You've got just such a great story. You're telling great stories. They're full of science, but they're really fun to read. For those of you listening, you can get James' book, Deep, on Amazon or anywhere. We'll have it in the show notes. He has a few other books and some great things he's working on. Where should people find out more? At MrJamesNestor.com, of course. Uh, And I do that Facebook thing about twice a week, so I post (laughs) stuff on that as well. Mr. James Nestor. Mr. James Nestor on Facebook and MrJamesNestor.com. James, thank you so much for being on the show today. I completely appreciate it. You're awesome. Thank you. It was great. So much fun. Thanks. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Wow. What an interesting guy James Nestor is. So now everyone just needs to go take a free diving class because that's what it's all about. Of course, consult your physician. But while you're at it, Go check out his book, Deep. You can get it on Amazon. I'll have links to where to get it on the show notes. It's also available on Audible, and he reads it. He's a great narrator. One more thing is if you go to his website, mrjamesnester.com, you have to watch this thing called The Click Effect. It's an amazing video about getting close to the largest predators on Earth, whales, and how they communicate through these clicks. Their language is far more sophisticated than we ever imagined. We didn't get a chance to get into it, but it's a great video to watch online. He talks a little bit about it in deep as well. 
While you're online, you can also subscribe to the wildideasworthliving.com newsletter. Wild Ideas comes out on Wednesdays. We talk about the upcoming shows, wild ideas I'm trying, wild ideas my guests are trying, wild ideas you can try right now. We'll also talk about classes we'll be offering starting this spring. And if you get a chance, go to iTunes, rate and review the show while you're there. They mean a ton to the livelihood of these podcasts. And if you like the show, let one friend know. That helps a lot. So thanks to all my listeners. Thanks to my subscribers. I'll read one review right here from C. Sally Surf. C. Sally Surf, whoever you are, this is a great review. She said, inspiration for miles. I love all the different people Shelby interviews. The conversations are not only motivating and inspiring, but Shelby asks questions that delve deep and draw the listeners in. She keeps going on and on and says, because you can do anything you set your mind to. See, see Sally Surfs. See Sally Surf. Say that a million times really fast. That's not easy. Anyways, thank you so much for your review on iTunes. Guys, I really appreciate all of you listening in your car, in your cube, on a run, on a mountain, going to the beach, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much. And remember, the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest idea. We'll see you next week.